Welcome to this episode of the Security Clearance Careers Podcast, ClearCast, your source for security clearance, intelligence community, espionage, national security, and defense contracting updates, and our exclusive interviews with intelligence community and government leaders. Hello and welcome. I'm Jill Hamilton, editor at Clearance Jobs. Thanks so much for joining us today. We're going to be chatting with Jason Lamb from the United States Space Force. We'll get to hear about his career path, the culture of Space Force, and how to join the team. So Jason, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you for inviting me. It's my pleasure. Tell us a little bit about yourself. Maybe share what your career path has looked like. Sure. My journey with the Air Force started in 1991 when I attended the Air Force Academy. I graduated in 95 and was commissioned as an active duty intelligence officer in the Air Force. I spent a little over 25 years as an officer, retired as a colonel, lots of deployed experience, Iraq, Afghanistan, commanded at a couple different levels, squadron and group, was also on a number of staffs from unified to geographic combatant commands, and even some time working in the Office of Secretary of Defense for Policy. It's really great. Now you're at the Space Force. Can you talk to us a little bit about the, what would you call the guardian ideal and maybe what the commitment looks like there? Sure. I mentioned all those things I did in the Air Force. What I didn't mention, and I think this is necessary context, is that I finished up my time in the Air Force writing a number of articles that were primarily published in War on the Rocks and Air Force Times. And those articles were really kind of challenging the way that the Air Force was developing talent, promoting talent, especially at more senior ranks, that there was a there were some disconnects between what we said we were all about and then what we were actually promoting. Not that they were diametrically opposed, just that there wasn't really good alignment. And so I challenged the Air Force on a number of fronts under my name, but also started off under the pseudonym Colonel Ned Stark. Fast forward, I retire from the Air Force and the Space Force gave me an offer that I couldn't refuse. And that was hey, put your money where your mouth is. We have established a new service. Help us craft a new way forward for talent management and, you know, which involves everything from identifying who we want to recruit through recruiting, developing, engaging, promoting, employing, all that good stuff. And you just can't say no to a put up or shut up moment like that. So joined Base Force happily. No kidding. Day one was going to a working group that was really the, the start for devising the Guardian Ideal, which is a visionary kind of strategy document about how we would do talent management in the Space Force and how it would be different. It was during that time that we recognized we need something that was based on the values and that we would do everything we could to be aligned to those values. And recognizing that in many cases, you have these values, you talk about them, but then you go back to your day to day. So how do we make it real? How do we make it tangible for everybody at every level? And so what what really struck me was the idea of formalizing this idea of a contract between guardians who are team members and their leadership. Because for most people, their experience in any organization, let alone in defense, is based on that experience with that frontline supervisor and their commander. So how do we make this a two-way street and not simply a one-way street where it's the commander or the supervisor saying, do this, do that? Do you not 
in fact, owe me something as a guardian when I give my life in service to my country, right, to serve, do I not get something in return? And so really that's the foundational concept behind the commitment, which says not just what every guardian should do, but also the commitment of their leadership to those guardians about what I owe you in return for your service. And so very, very exciting to have that baked into our entire idea about how we are going to manage talent in the Space Force. Yeah, that's huge. I love that you spent time writing with your name and a pseudonym so that you could really get those thoughts out there because it's really helpful to have those concepts there on talent management because it's a real struggle. You know, thinking the DoD as a whole, would you say that is the, the key driver, just that opportunity to put into action what you've been talking about on paper for so long? How has the experience been for you so far? That is absolutely why I joined the Space Force. I had some other offers, but really what it was was the sense of, of purpose and opportunity to do something new. And in my own conversations with some Air Force senior leaders, they were equally excited about the idea of me joining the Space Force. I'd been offered some opportunities in the Air Force, but there's nothing like a fresh, clean sheet of paper as your starting point. The Air Force senior leaders were excited because they thought if I could actually, you know, working with the Space Force and my teammates in the Space Force, so this is definitely not me on my own, but working with my teammates in the Space Force to craft something new to show what is actually possible to bring in what science tells us is possible, you know, industrial organizational psychology and behavioral science and the science behind high-performing teams and extracting best practices from the private sector and combining those things in a military context to show that there is a different approach that's not only possible, but is going to generate better results. I don't know how you could hear that and not get excited about it. And if you don't get excited about that, I, I got nothing for you. That's <laughs> so true. Yeah, it is. I, I mean, I feel excited even right now. So, you know, it is such an opportunity. I think a lot of people are watching to see how Space Force develops because it, it is such an interesting and exciting phenomenon to think that we could start a military branch. I mean, obviously it's been done before in history, right? But sometimes you get to this point and think it's we're not going to be able to do something new and fresh and still stick within with military context, like you said. So it's exciting to see that developing. Speaking of a different military branch, um, can you explain how the culture is still DOD military space force, but perhaps different than other branches? Absolutely. So one of the things about space force that is different, right? When people talk about guardians, you can get these questions about are guardians in space? Well, well, some of them are, right? When they, when they go up to the International Space Station, you know, working and partnering with NASA and other governmental agencies and, and partner nations, there is an opportunity to go in space, but that is, that's not what really the Space Force mission is, right? To secure and defend space, a huge and physically imposing and hostile domain. I mean, it's, a, it's an irradiated vacuum, for goodness sake. It doesn't get much more hostile than that. Some of the challenges for us, right, is to operate by, with, and through space without necessarily have, having a physical human person in space, which means you have to be masters of electromagnetic spectrum. You have to fully understand and appreciate cyber, right? You have to understand the physics of space, orbital mechanics, solar radiation, solar flares. You have to understand what other people are doing in space without being able to physically go there. So it's hugely 
challenging. I mean, someday there will be a, you know, a more permanent manned presence in space. I mean, as, as, as human beings, when I know it sounds like science fiction, but, but so many things, you know, use aircraft used to be science fiction. So at some point we are going to expand private sector in many cases is leading the way, just like they did with air, uh, just like they did with water and, and traversing the seas. So it, it's going to change over time. But what makes us different is the idea of how are you a space warfighter or joint operator when you're not in that domain, right? When you're not sitting in that domain, that you're operating in it remotely. So it requires, for the most part, more technical savvy to be able to operate and visualize in your mind and also to be able to create situational pictures, like common operating pictures, without actually being there, without being able to lay your physical eyes on it. It does require a little bit different person to recognize that, but at the same time recognize that we are operating in a contested domain where our adversaries want to deny us superiority, the ability to operate when and where we choose. I would say it's similar though to many other DOD missions in that space. For example, in intelligence, surveillance, and reconnaissance, we frequently have operators in one location that are flying remotely piloted aircraft in other locations. And we're collecting the data and we're synthesizing it in another location. So this is not unknown territory to us, but it does challenge the concept of a warfighter if you're not necessarily being actively shot at. Now, if adversaries are actively seeking to adversely impact our abilities, either through kinetic means, which both the Russians and the Chinese have demonstrated, you know, creating, you know, hazards in space, really sometimes in an irresponsible way, or using electronic warfare, right? Electronic jamming, different types of effects that, you know, so bottom line, when you look at the effects, it is contested, even if we aren't physically in harm's way. So that warfighter mindset is absolutely essential when we think about securing and defending space. But it is a little bit different than other branches, which are characterized by being in physical harm's way. So you answered a little bit about this. Obviously, we talked about they're not headed to space, mostly. <laughs> Talk about how Space Force is protecting U.S. citizens. But specifically, what do you need your guardians to do to make that happen? You talk about all the different ways that the space is contested and all the challenges they have to overcome with visualizing remotely what kind of warfare that they're working with that's different than other branches with the same military mindset of that. What do they do to make this happen? Sure. The first recognition is that no one person can do this. The entire concept of operating in space and being a guardian is about teams and reliance on teams. This is not necessarily unique in DOD, but it's kind of unique to a service. When we talk about the rest of the Department of Defense, when we, for example, when we do performance reports or performance evaluations, most of them tend to be in comparison and to a certain extent in competition with the very people that you're serving with. You're trying to distinguish yourself. The Space Force construct is built in such a way that we recognize you cannot be an expert in all things space in one person. We have to have teams and we have to leverage the diversity and the strengths of each individual member of a team to play off of each other. It's really much more of a soft, so special operations forces mental construct about a team where somebody's primary for a given thing and they, no kidding, go a mile deep in their expertise in that area. And we rely on our other teammates 
to handle those other things. And, and as we operate and appreciate what everybody brings to the fight, we operate much more effectively. We get many more insights than if everybody, for example, on a fire team, you know, I'm firing this machine gun and everybody understands each other and does each other's jobs, right? I'm a rifleman, so I may be in this firing position, but I could just as easily be in that other position. No, we're intelli- intentionally developing the strengths of individual guardians, not making them one size fits all or interchangeable, but building those skill sets and, and knowing those skill sets well enough that we can build a team that compensates for each other's maybe limitations and makes the most of a guardian's strengths. As a service, it's a different organizing construct, or if it's not different, it's carried to a much greater extent than you're going to find in, in most places in Department of Defense, if that makes sense. Oh, it totally makes sense. And I think the the size and like the startup mentality as well, I think really helps play into that and builds that from the ground up, you know, being able to focus on the different type of warfare that you are zeroing in on. But it is pretty exciting approach, I think, especially for a military branch to just be just this one individual. We're talking about what your individual strength is, but also how that plays into the role of the overall team. Because without you, we we all need each other. You know, that's the whole idea behind teams, you know, it's how we want them to work. So it's exciting to think of what you can achieve with that as a space force, right? No, I was just going to say, I think you hit on the most important point. And that is we're competing with our adversaries and would-be adversaries. We're not competing against each other. Yeah. Because you're not trying to have an individual contest to see who can outperform their next team member. We have a very focused mission here. Not that the military as a whole doesn't have that. I think in many ways they do, but competition does help us strive forward more. But I, I love the approach that you have with really dialing in on what our mission is and why we're actually trying to compete. So we'll talk about your talent approach and how it works to achieve your mission success. You touched on this a little bit earlier, but I think it's really helpful to elevate this more, but what does it require from leadership and from individual team members? Absolutely, and and I love that we're coming full circle. So so thank you so much for this question. For us, it really comes back to the guardian commitment. Uh, So the guardian commitment is contained in the guardian ideal, and we're in the process of writing a guide to go with it, really to go in a lot more detail to help folks because it really is the foundation for our team. So the Guardian Commitment has our values running down the middle of it. So character, connection, commitment, and courage. The alliteration is intentional to help facilitate people remembering it. But even if they never remember those words, as long as they are living them, I'm good. We're all good. So then on the commitment, on the right side of the page, it has the expectations, these I will statements for team members three for each value. And on the other side of the page, the left side, it has the expectations for team leaders. What's really important here is I emphasize, and General Raymond is very careful to emphasize, every guardian, civilian or uniformed, is a team member first. So there are some differences between those statements, as you might imagine, but everybody starts as a team member, whether you're a brand new hire as a, as a civilian, entry-level hire or basic trainee, all the way to General Raymond. We're team members first. And that's so important to our culture. It's kind of like when we say no jerks, right? Uh, No brilliant jerks. We're all team members first. Even leaders, leaders are on teams. So if we talk about squadron commanders, Delta commanders, general officers, they're still part of teams. But then we recognize that we have some guardians that have been entrusted and given the privilege of leading teams of our guardians. So it spells out between those statements, kind of the differences for setting the conditions, creating the environment, 
safeguarding the environment where everybody can bring what they're best at to the team without fear of judgment or being made to feel stupid. Because we all know there are so many times when we can kick ourselves and say, oh, I should have said this. I should have I done this. But we didn't because we were afraid that we would be judged or excluded or mocked or ridiculed. So if we create that environment where people can honestly bring their different perspectives and their strengths to the fight, I can only imagine how much better and more effective we will be uh, as teams. And that's really exciting because when we're talking about the smallest service, right, responsible for the largest and, and physic most physically challenging of the warfighting domains, I think that's the only way we have a chance of being successful and actually defending the nation and our way of life. Uh, if you've never seen it and you're wondering why, why the Space Force is necessary, why do we need guardians? Watching or doing a Google search on a day without space is really taking us back to almost the Stone Age, except that the Stone Age people actually had life skills and could function without the things that we've become so dependent on. So that's our why, it's to defend our way of life to secure it for our partners and allies and, and for Americans. And the only way we're going to do that is team. And those teams are based on the Guardian commitment. Yeah, well, I, for one, do not want to envision a world where it's a day without space. My life is super dependent on it. So it's a really great point. Well, Jason, it was so wonderful talking to you. My curiosity is incredibly peaked, and I would love to learn even more. I've been following probably along with the rest of the U.S., especially those in national security, following the Space Force story. And I'm really excited to continue to hear more about it. And super interesting, encouraging to hear your whole talent approach and just the difference that that could make. Thank you also for joining us today at ClearCast. For more security clearance news and defense information, please visit us at news.clearancejobs.com.